If you would, open your Bibles to John chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14. We're in a sermon series titled, The I Am Statements of Jesus. And the very first words from our passage are amazing. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. That's how our passage begins. Let not your hearts be troubled. My friends, those are words for us today. Oh, how so easily our hearts can be troubled, right? May the Lord give us the same comfort that he afforded those first hearers. John 14, verses 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words to us. We are, we are often troubled people. Troubled by even such insignificant things in life that, that really shouldn't hamper us. More importantly, we're called to honor you with our lives by, by serving in your kingdom and, and telling people about Christ in your kingdom. And that's a troubling work too. So we pray that we would understand more, more fully these words, that there were things for us to know and things for us to believe. And by doing so, we will see, um, the comfort that you offer all those who follow you. Amen. Context is king. If I heard that once in my four years of seminary, I probably heard it a thousand times. Context is king. See, if we fail to get the original context of the passage that we're looking at, we will likely fail to make the proper sense of the passage. And most likely our application for ourselves 
will be incorrect. So, so we need to know the context, like the historical context of the passage. In, in God's timeline of redemptive history, where does that passage fit in? We need to understand the literary context as well. Where in the Bible is this passage found? What chapter, what book is it in? Who wrote it? What are the adjoining uh, passages around this text? Context is key. Let me give you an example. One of, my, one of my favorite Christian verses is Philippians 4.13, where Paul writes, I can do all things through him, that's Christ, who strengthens me. And so usually this time of year, it's football season, you'll see some Christian football player with Philippians 4.13 uh, on their cheeks, and they're going out, and, and I don't know all their motives, but my guess is most of them are misapplying that, that passage. Um, and when they put that on, they're going out thinking that, Christ is going to give me strength, and I'm going to win this game. Problem is, what if the other quarterback's a Christian too? He's got the same thing. I don't know. And so, but what is the context? Do you guys know what the context is? Paul is writing the Philippian church. He is in prison. When you're in prison in Rome, they don't give you food and stuff. You depend on others being generous. And this church had sent a lot of money for Paul. And Paul is thanking them, but he wants them to know that he can be content no matter his circumstances. He says, I've, I've learned to be content when I've had plenty, and I've learned to be content when I've had nothing. How is it that I can have this contentment? Then he says, or I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Paul says, I can, I can be rich, I can be poor and be content because Christ gives me strength. So now if the, Christian wants to wear that on their, on their, on their cheeks. That's fine. But, but the reality is the application is I can go on this field and I can succeed or I can fail and I'll be content. My identity isn't wrapped up in me winning today. And I'm not going to doubt God because I didn't win because I prom- he's got this promise for me. He promises us contentment. And so that's why it's important for us to understand the context when we're looking at a passage. Now, all that I said so we can think about our text today. Our passage today, if you don't get the right context in which it, these words were spoken, then chances are we're going to take these words of Jesus and we're going to put them on a shelf and we'll only bring them down in two instances, funerals and evangelism. And Edna dies. And so we, we reach up and we bring Jesus' words down and we say, in her father's house there are many rooms and she's got one now and it's got a great view. Don't worry about Aunt Edna. Let's go eat some casserole. All right? And then the other is... Then the other is... <laughs> I'm sorry. No. The other is a friend or a coworker, somebody you're sharing the gospel with them. And then and then the person uh says, "Well, you know, you know, my God wouldn't be so narrow-minded as to have only one way to him." And then you reach up on that shelf with this wry smirk and you're like, "Okay, well, guess what? You know what Jesus said? John, John 14:6. Jesus said, "I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." Bam, take that. Now, it's not that we can't use this passage in funerals or uh, in our evangelism, but the context of this passage isn't funerals or evangelism. And so when we get the context right, we will come to see that Jesus' words here aren't for us to put on a shelf just to take back in those instances. In fact, they are for every day of our lives. We get a clue of this in the very opening verses. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. Believe also in God. The context is what? 
Jesus, in a few hours, Jesus is going to be betrayed. Within 24 hours, he'll be dead in a tomb. That's the context. Right now, the disciples are in the upper room. Jesus welcomed them by washing their feet. They recline at the Last Supper. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And, the, and then Judas Iscariot gets up and rises. He leaves. And then with Judas gone, Jesus literally says, okay, now let's get down to business. Okay, he doesn't literally say that. But he says, I'm, I'm, he says, now is the Son of Man to be glorified. The time has come. He says, I will be with you just a little bit more. Then I'm leaving and you will seek me. But where I'm going, you cannot come. And Peter stands up and says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you can follow after me later. And, and Peter cannot stand cannot stand the thought that Jesus will go somewhere without him, such as his devotion. So he stands up and says, Lord, I will lay down my life for you if I have to. I'm going to follow you. And then Jesus says those famous words, will you? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will crow tomorrow morning, and he won't crow until you've denied me three times. That's the context of this passage. The very next words after Jesus says, really? I don't think so, are these words. The context is that the disciples are traumatized, confused, downcast, bewildered. They've been following Jesus for three years, and now all of a sudden, in a few hours, he's going to be gone. It's into that bewilderment that Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus' words were words of comfort into their confusion and doubt. And so his words are for us today as well. Our, our hearts are easily troubled, are they not? And I'm not so much talking about the vain things that trouble us. Will my car pass inspection? Will my Amazon purchase arrive on time? You know, these aren't the troubles that Jesus is addressing. Jesus is addressing the challenges we face when we live for him and his kingdom. How do we know that? By the end of the passage, he's saying that everyone who believes in him will do greater works than he. He's going, but the kingdom's going to keep advancing. And so as we follow after Christ, as we live for him and his kingdom, God will do amazing things through us so long as our hearts are not troubled. I like how C.S. Lewis frames it. Listen to what he says. We're not doubting that God will do the best for us. We're wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. It's true, isn't it? Our hearts are troubled in our calling to honor Christ with our lives, to truly live for Christ and his kingdom. It troubles us, especially when he's not around. We wonder how painful it will be. Where are you, Jesus? Have you left us? Are we abandoned? Jesus speaks to us as he did to those first believers. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I am your way. I am your truth. I am your life. And because of this, we must trust Jesus with all that could trouble us as we live for him and his kingdom. That's the context. That's where those words come in. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at first, uh, and you're like, they're all P's, okay? The prepared place, then the perfect path, and the promised power. First, the prepared place. 
Jesus has gone ahead to prepare a place for those who believe. Jesus is concerned for the troubled hearts of his disciples. So Jesus speaks words of comfort. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. Wonderful words of comfort. Understand this. These disciples, they already believe, right? Think about it. Of all the people on the earth at that exact time, these disciples know more and believe more about Jesus than anybody else. And yet, Jesus still has more for them to know and embrace and believe. Isn't that how the Christian life is? Jesus always desires to take us deeper and open up more and more of who he is and what it means to know him and believe in him. In our first section, what is it that he wants them and us to know and believe? Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. It's it's his house. And in his house, there's many, many rooms. You, you want to have to like, <laughs> was there a lot of snoring at the women's retreat? All right. Yeah. So, and you had to share a room? Like, there's no room sharing in heaven, ladies. That's good news, isn't it? Just that one thing to, from this passage. You can go home now. Okay. No, there's many rooms. I think I just embarrassed all of you. Jesus says, I wouldn't be saying this if it wasn't true. And listen, don't get distracted by who's playing football later today. Of, of, all the ways Jesus could have described heaven, how does he describe it? Is it harps and ghost-like human beings floating on clouds? If that's what heaven is, guys, I don't want to go there either. Okay? But what is heaven? Look, Jesus says heaven is a home. Heaven is a home, the Father's home. Now, I know some of you come from broken homes, full of bickering and lies and abandonment, alcoholism, you name it. I came from a home like that. So it may be hard to separate all the brokenness from your mind as you hear Jesus' words, but in heaven, Jesus has prepared a room in His Father's house, the perfect, loving, kind, gentle, heavenly Father's house. I don't think there could be a better picture for us of what heaven is. Right? There couldn't be a better description. Heaven is a home. I like what J.C. Riles writes about on this. Here's what, here's what he says. He says, home, as we all know, is the place, listen, where we are generally loved for our own sakes and not for our gifts or possessions. The place where we are loved to the end and never forgotten, and always welcome. For now, believers, he goes on to say, are in a strange land at the school of this life. In the life to come, they will be at home. So Jesus tells those disciples, I'm not abandoning you. It might look like that, but I'm doing something wonderful. I'm going ahead to prepare a place for you. I'm preparing a room for you, a home in heaven. 
Heaven isn't described as some unfamiliar weird place that could never capture our imaginations. Heaven is home. And we all know what that is or should be. Everything wonderful about home here on earth in heaven is taken to the nth degree. Joy, welcome, happiness, security, mutual love, respect. And home would be nothing without the kind. What would heaven be like if the Father's not there? Home would be nothing without the kind and loving, joyful presence of the Father. Jesus says he's going ahead to prepare a place in his Father's house. The Heavenly Father who looks upon you with steadfast love and mercy and compassion. The Heavenly Father who's probably unlike our earthly fathers who were quick to anger. No, we see that our Heavenly Father is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He delights, understand this, He delights to lavish His children with His blessings and His gifts. That's whose home it is. That's the place that Jesus has gone to prepare for us. So let not your hearts be troubled. That's the perfect place, or the um, prepared place. Now for the perfect path. Throughout this passage we read, the disciples are still confused, right? Jesus said at the end of verse 3, that where I'm going, you may be also. In verse 4 he says, and you know the way where I'm going. Jesus says, you know where, and you know the way. And Thomas raises his hand, and he says, um, <clears throat> Lord, um, by the way, that was some really good bread, that unleavened bread. Um, but also, Lord, um, thanks for the foot washing. And uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How are we going to know the way? And Jesus, and, and this is where we Christians need to demonstrate contextual awareness. We read this passage already knowing a lot of things that they don't know, Right? We know that Jesus is going to be, be uh, dead within 24 hours and in a tomb. We know that he'll be risen, he'll rise from the dead, that he will send back into the, into heaven. And we know that these very wimpy, confused band of disciples will stand before all of Jerusalem in 50 days time, proclaiming that you've killed the Messiah, the Son of God. We all know that these disciples, all of them except John, will, will die violently proclaiming this kingdom that Jesus has called them to go and then and proclaiming that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. We, we already know these things, but the disciples at this time don't, and so they're confused. And so we must understand their context so that we can better understand how those words of Jesus are able to not just still their troubled hearts, but embolden their hearts to do even greater works than Jesus in a few weeks' time. And so based on the context, we can understand why the disciples are confused and fearful. Jesus is saying he's going somewhere that they cannot follow, and it's not T.J. Maxx, right? I mean, um, they know something ominous is looming. They, they sense it in his words and in Jesus' tone and his throat. And, and, and Jesus says, you cannot follow me now, but later you will follow. It's confusing, right? They really don't know. And so Jesus says in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Now, it is important to me to just talk a little bit about this. In our postmodern society, Jesus' words here are denounced as being narrow and intolerant. We don't have enough time to lay out all the good arguments that I've studied over the years for, for why we can believe that God has one way to Him, and that's okay. But let me just give you a quick three points. One, for those of you who insist that, there, that if there is a God, then He has to have multiple ways to Him, I hope you see that to, to demand this of God is a sign of lacking in humility on your part. You're placing yourself above God. God, you must be like this or you don't exist. Right? You see that. J.C. Ryle said, we must not pretend to be wiser than God. Two, when a hurricane hits, and they come around here fairly regularly, and you run to stop and shop to get your bread and your milk and your batteries, do you complain because there's only one door in? Three, you lack an accurate awareness of the situation. If there is a God, then the problem is we need a way back to Him. Someone to stand between us and God. We need a mediator. We need a ransom payer, a redeemer, one who can take the punishment for us, one who can pay the price, one who can make things right, because we can't. And C.S. Lewis states it with simplicity. Here's what we see that God does. The Son of God, listen, became a man to enable men to become sons of God. That's the simplicity of the gospel. Jesus. Jesus is the only way to God because there is no other way. No other way will work. We need God's way. And praise God that Jesus is correct when he says that he is the way and the truth and the life. Now we can use Jesus' words here to help people understand that Jesus alone is your only hope of, of heaven. But ultimately, these words weren't meant for evangelism. They were meant to give us comfort. Jesus comforts Thomas and the other disciples. Jesus is saying, Thomas, my, my father has, has a home. You're concerned that you don't know where it is or how on earth you're going to find your way there. Let not your heart be troubled. I am the way and you know me. <laughs> Come, follow me. I will get you there. Do you see how Jesus' words aren't there to, just to prove that he's the only way to God? He said them to assure Thomas and the others that they were on the perfect path. No need to struggle to find some other way. There is just one way. Jesus is saying, I'm the way. You just have to let me lead you. One day at a time. Trust me, I'll get you there. This comforts us too. If you have Christ, your way is sure and it's certain. There's no need for you to take up other paths. No need to look for other saviors in this world. There are none. Let not your hearts be troubled. So we've seen the prepared place, the perfect path, now for the promised power. So far, Jesus has spoken into the distress of the disciples. First, by saying, I'm not abandoning you. I'm actually going ahead to my father's house to prepare it for you. And I will come and get you. And though you have many uncertainties in life, you can be certain that I am the way into your glorious future. I will get you there. Now the issue they will soon realize is that Jesus has gone ahead. 
But God's plan of establishing and growing his kingdom on earth, it's just beginning to kick off. Jesus will soon call them after he's raised from the dead to go into all nations and making disciples. These fearful disciples will soon, they'll stand tall and they're going to zealously preach the presence of God's kingdom on earth. And they will invite people to come and join and enter into it. And so the last section of our passage, Jesus promises them power. The very same power from heaven that they saw in Jesus, listen, will be in them. Let not your hearts be troubled precisely because I'm going away. You will do greater things than me. From our vantage point of 2,000 years of theological development and astuteness, it's easy for us to see these disciples. They still had much to learn. One thing they needed to learn is is the divinity of Jesus. This unity between Jesus the Son and God the Father. In verse 7, Jesus acknowledges that the disciples don't really know him or his Father, but soon that will change. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. From now on refers to the events that are happening right now. That last supper, the cross the next day, the grave, three days time, the empty tomb. Philip says, Lord, just show us the Father. That's enough for us. I'm a little tired here. I don't understand. I'm confused. It appears as if he wants to experience what Moses experienced when he said to Yahweh, you know, show me your glory. And God's like, all right, I'll do it. I'll let you just a little. I can't let you see the whole thing. I'll show you my glory. And then God revealed his glory to Moses and his face shone for days because of that. Philip says, just show us that. That'll be enough. We'll be fine. In verse 9, we read, Jesus said to them, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Philip was one of the first disciples to follow Jesus. He'd been there with Jesus the longest of them all. Jesus like, you still don't know me. I don't think he said it in like, oh, you still don't know me. You know? Like he wants his disciples to know him. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else if you can't just believe that, would you believe on the count of the works themselves? You've seen what I've been doing in your midst. Let's not judge Philip too harshly. Remember, Jesus had come to earth under the veil of poverty and weakness and humiliation. We can get why they get him wrong. If we were there, none of us would have pointed to Jesus and said, second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man. There he is. Right? No. 
But that is the point Jesus conveys with the words, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. I'm divine. I'm not a normal human being. That's why I can be your way and your truth and your life. Jesus is proclaiming his divinity. And, and, and so he's able to say those amazing words. If, if you, if you want to see God, just look at me. I can't say that. I can say, if you want to see God, just look at me if I'm doing the things I should be doing. <laughs> if you want to know how much God loves you, look to his son whom he sent to live and to die for you so that you can truly become a child of God. Do you want to know how holy God is? Well, look at the moral beauty of Jesus. My friends, morality is beautiful. God's morality. Look to him and see how similar to us and yet entirely different Jesus was. Do you want to know how patient God is? Then, then look at how patient our Lord is with these wayward disciples. Do you want to know how wise God is? Look at the wisdom of Jesus and how everybody was marveling at his words. Do you, do you want to know how trustworthy God is? Look at the steadfast, faithful love of Jesus. Jesus comforts his disciples by opening their eyes to who he is. Jesus and the Father are one. The Father is in the Son. The Son and the Father. Therefore, you know, what you see me do, all these miraculous works, we're doing them together. And then Jesus says, because I'm going, you will do greater works than I've done. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus says, because he's going to the Father, that those who believe in him and live out his kingdom purposes on earth will do greater works than he. What are the works that believers are promised the power to do? Well, I'm sorry, it's not to walk on water. <laughs> That'd be really helpful. I mean, the fish have been biting, but they're like, you can't cast that far. So it'd be nice to be able to walk out there. Um, we can't calm the raging storms with our voice. No. What was the reason, though, that Jesus came? And why did the Father perform works through him? Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of heaven, call people to repentance and entrance into the kingdom. And so all of Jesus' works on earth were about declaring the kingdom and that he is the rightful king and inviting people to enter and find forgiveness in life. Jesus came to be the way, the truth, and the life so that the world can have peace with God and welcome into the Father's home. And so what Jesus is preparing them for is the world that we live in. His work on earth in his physical body is over. But his work on earth in his spiritual body, us, the church, is still going on. And so the greater works that Jesus speaks of is the vastly greater number of souls that would be reached by his disciples than Jesus could ever reach when he walked on earth. Far more people have heard the kingdom call and have entered the kingdom through his disciples than ever through Jesus' proclamation. 
on Pentecost, 50 days after this very night of the Lord's Supper, Peter stood up before thousands in Jerusalem. People from all over the known world had gathered there for, for the Feast of the Pentecost. And he, he preached the very first sermon. And 3,000 people believed in that one moment. Greater works indeed. At Pentecost came the promised power, the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in the people of God. And context is king. The very next verse after our verse is where Jesus promises, if your Bibles are open, in, in, um, in, in verse uh, 15, Jesus promised to what? To send another helper. To be with you forever. The Holy Spirit. Jesus says that the world doesn't, doesn't know the Holy Spirit. The world but you do. <laughs> he says, for he dwells with you and will soon be in you. And then he says, I will not leave you as orphans. Talk about encouragement. Let not your hearts be troubled. The, the disciples think that they will be all alone when Jesus leaves. But no, he will be present and they will do greater things. Jesus is saying, right now God is dwelling in just one person, me. But soon God will be dwelling in all of his children. What an encouragement. After this, Jesus says in verse 13 that though he's going into heaven, the disciples will still have access to him. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now let's get this straight first. Um, if you want to think that Jesus will give you anything that you ask for, uh, you got another thing coming. Jesus didn't say whatever you ask for, he will do it. No, he said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Anything that I'd be happy to stamp my name on. Anything kingdom focused, even small things like, like blessings for your family or work. I'm happy to do those things in my name. This means we don't ask for high paying jobs so we can have a life of comfort. But it does mean that when we ask for things that are according to God's will and they bring glory to God, then we are to believe that our prayers will be answered yes. Perhaps not in the time that we want them, but in God's timing. Just ask anything in my name and I will do it. Talk about a promise of power. Jesus wants us to draw near to him in prayer. And he's not reluctant. It's, it's not like he's got the no card up. You know, uh, it's going to be a no unless you really get me. Then I'll turn it to a yes. No. Parents, how many times have your kids said, I was going to ask you, but I know you were going to say no. Let us not be like that with Christ. He is watching and listening, and he is ready to say yes. He is predisposed to say yes to his children. Every good thing we ask in his name, he's ready to say yes. Christian, does this not change your attitude towards life? The way you see the troubles in this world, does it, does it not cause you to want to 
honor Him more with how you live for Him and His kingdom and not your own petty little needs. Maybe you haven't had a prayer answer in a while because you keep asking for your own petty little needs instead of some big, glorious, kingdom-changing good thing that He's ready to work in and through you. Context is king, right? It's true. Jesus knows that his followers will often feel overwhelmed as they try to live for his kingdom and his glory. So our application is simple. We need to ask ourselves, is the focus of my life upon Christ and his kingdom, or have I been sidelined by lesser things in this world? Perhaps the reason we can find ourselves sidelined is that that is that C.S. Lewis's words ring true. We're not doubting that God will do the best for us. We're wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. Confused, overwhelmed, bewildered. That is how we can feel when we hear Christ's continual call to live for Him as our King and His kingdom. And we say, where are you, Jesus? I feel abandoned. No, this, these words to us this morning tell us Something different. Jesus is our way, our truth, and our life. He has gone ahead to prepare a place for us. He's not abandoned us. And He will come and bring us to Him. He's the only one who can do it. He's the perfect path. There is no other way. May that bring us comfort and joy this morning. And He has given us the promise of power in the present to encourage us and empower us to do great things for Him. So, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it is true. Your call upon our lives is a call to something epic. call to something grand. Far greater than building a business or or launching a website, uh, or, or having this big, beautiful home to sit in. You've called us to your kingdom and your kingdom purposes. That can be overwhelming, but we're thankful. We're thankful, Jesus, that you've said these words to your disciples then and to your disciples today. Help us to believe all the more. Help us to follow after you and trust in you and be comforted by you, we pray. Amen.